So this morning I'm like having my quiet time in the Grizz Cave, reading some scripture, going through the mortification of sin by John Owen. He's punching me in the face and <laughs> I'm uh, just writing things down, journaling, but I needed some time in worship just to help me get focused on God and to help me just uh, fight, battle, sin, my flesh. So uh, I wanted to hear that old song, Because He Lives. I grew up with the old hymns. I love the old hymns, man. And uh, I was on YouTube, not YouTube, I was on iTunes. And so I type in Because He Lives, and then I typed in Bluegrass. Because I, even though I love like, classic rock i love old school hip-hop i love like techno i love all sorts of music man but i do love bluegrass i grew up with it my dad was just a fanatic for bluegrass and he played the auto harp and everything and he would sing in our church and sing at the jail ministry that he used to do um i just anyway type this in because he lives bluegrass and it came up with this group called the Gospel Plowboys. I never heard of the Gospel Plowboys. I like their name. And I just want to play this. I want to start this episode with this song, man. And if you know it, dude, just sing along with the Grizz, man. Let it just lift you up, minister to you. This is some good, good freaking stuff right here, man. God sent his son. They call him Jesus. To love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives because he lives. I can face tomorrow. He lives, all fear is gone, because I know He holds a future, and life is worth the living just because He lives. Oh my gosh. Bring it. That's some good stuff right there. How sweet to hold, hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he brings. But greater still, the calm assurance this child can days because he lives because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds a future worth a living just because he lives don't give up my brother keep looking up and then one day here it comes it's coming I'll cross that river I'll fight life's fine no more He lives, all fear is gone, because I know 
is worth the living just because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I Because he lives, because he lives. Oh, oh, yes. Come on now. Woo! Where? Oh my goodness, man! If that don't get you up, man, you can't. something wrong with you. Oh my goodness. Anyway, I got tears of joy falling down my face. Man. Anyway, whoo. Breathe. On this episode, we're ripping back into the amazing life of Joseph. This is part four, and this is the part where the hurricane finally hits Joseph. His whole world is turned upside down, but God has an amazing, incredible plan that he is working through all of it. Nothing has caught God unaware in Joseph's life. And God has an incredible plan that he wants to work in and through your life as well, if you will simply trust him and obey him through whatever hurricanes that you face. You have a choice to make, my brother. You always have a choice to make. Every single day, you have a choice to make. You know, we can't always determine what happens to us, but we can always determine how we respond to what happens to us. You can choose your response, and your response is what makes all the difference. You see, when the hurricane rocked Joseph's life, he chose to respond humbly, manly, godly, wisely. And it brought about an amazing miracle that saved countless lives. And we need to learn from Joseph. So here we go. The hurricanes in life are going to hit my brothers. Who are you going to turn to? What are you going to do? We went from bluegrass to scorpions. That's how we roll. Oh yeah. Y'all know what time it is. You're listening to the Grizz Podcast. It's gonna be raw. It's gonna be real. And it's gonna be relevant. We're here to guide, encourage, and equip you to live the manly life that God is calling you to live. It's time for you to step up and man up. That's what God expects, and that's what this jacked-up world desperately needs. Now here's our host, Jason George. Come on. Here I am. Rock you like a hurricane. What is going down on my brothers from other mothers around the world? If you're new to the podcast, I got issues. Welcome to my world. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to tune in, listen to the Grizz. Once again, I'm here in the old Grizz cave with my dog Remy at my feet. Got a hot cup of coffee. Got my Bible here on my desk. Bible is open. Let's go. Today is Monday, November 14th, 2022. It's a chilly day here in the low country. Chilly here is 50 degrees. <laughs> anyway, I don't know about you, but man, I need God's word. You know why? You know why? 
because I'm not as strong as I think I am, because I'm not as wise as I think I am, because I'm not as godly as I think I am. I've proven that over and over and over again in my Christian life. Some people say, oh, you read your Bible so much because you're so godly. I'm like, no, I read my Bible so much because I'm aware of how weak and ungodly I am. I need it. I need the constant rebuke, correction, guidance, encouragement, and light that it brings. I got lots of issues, my brothers, and the Bible is full of lots of remedies for my issues. You know what I'm saying? So go get your Bible, get your pen, get your journal, get yourself a hot cup of coffee, and go to Genesis chapter 37 and follow along with me. Starting at verse 1, a little bit of review here. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastor in the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, His father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Let me grab a sip of my coffee here, and then we're going to begin to break this down. So all of Joseph's brothers, they go off to pasture their father's flock uh, at a town called Shechem. And I want you to notice, first of all, that Joseph is not there. He's not there working with them because, as we've already found out, he's his father's favorite son. As we've already gone over, Joseph has been given a robe from his father. It's not a robe of many colors. We talked about that. This robe is different. It is a longer flowing robe. It has long sleeves. And this robe indicates that Joseph doesn't have to work the way his brothers do. You see, the robe signifies status, nobility, privilege. It's something that an overseer would wear to reveal preeminence over the workers. But the workers are his brothers. The robe boldly says to his brothers, that he, Joseph, is more important than you are. And he doesn't have to do the dirty, sweaty, blue-collar work 
to provide for the family that all of you have to do. And this, of course, produced anger, jealousy, envy, resentment, hate, and a desire to murder Joseph. They wanted to murder him. Verse 4 of chapter 37 says that his brothers hated him so much that they couldn't speak one kind word to him ever. Imagine living in a home like that. Then, on top of all of that, Joseph has the mysterious dreams about his family bowing down to him as if he's going to become a ruler over them. And this just adds fuel to the fire inside this dysfunctional family. And we also know, as we talked about on uh, part one and two, uh, from John chapter four and five, the gospel of John chapter four and five, that Jacob actually gave Joseph land. This isn't stated in Genesis, but we find out about it later in the Gospel of John. Chapter 4, verse 5. Jacob gave Joseph land. That means Joseph was given the inheritance, not the oldest son, not any other son, just Joseph. And his brothers hated him because of all of this. But listen to me. I said this before. This is a significant point. They also hated him because their lives were utterly sinful. In his life, Joseph was righteous. You see, darkness hates light because light exposes darkness for what it is. Darkness, sin, evil. So now, at this point in the story, life is about to rock Joseph like a hurricane. So back to the story. Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers who were pasturing their father's flock uh, at a town called Shechem. And I looked into this, and this was no easy stroll to the end of the block. You see, from their home, which was in the valley of Hebron, this was a good 50-mile journey. I want you to think about that for a minute. 50 miles. There is no car. There's no Uber. It's either hiking on foot or maybe Joseph has a camel or a donkey. This is a two- to three-day trip to go check on his brother's. So Joseph gets to Shechem, and his brothers, they're not even there. They're nowhere to be found. And a man tells Joseph that his brothers were here, but he heard them say that they were going to go over to another town called Dothan. So Joseph travels 50 miles, and then he travels another 15 miles to get to Dothan. That's approximately 65 miles of travel one way, to check on his brothers. You know, this reminded me of the book I just finished reading, The Comfort Crisis. And it made me stop and just think of how different it is today in our comfortable world. You see, back in the day, humans covered miles of ground daily. And they did so while carrying heavy things. They had to. That's how it was. That was survival back then. They didn't have to go to their air-conditioned gym to get in there 30 minutes on the treadmill, cardio, and then hit 30 minutes of lifting some weights. They didn't need to do that back in the day because their everyday life provided all of the rigorous exercise that they needed to stay fit and healthy. Like, when was the last time you walked 50, no, 65 miles 
even if you did travel it by camel or donkey, when's the last time you did that? <laughs> Dude, this is one of the reasons why, and I was talking about this on the comfort crisis as we went over that. It's one of the reasons why modern day Americans are so unhealthy. Most are living a comfortable, sedentary lifestyle. They go from laying in their bed to sitting in their car to sitting in their office chair, then back to sitting in their car, then to sitting on their couch, Netflixing, then back to laying in their bed, and then they repeat that day after day, week after week month after month, year after year. My brothers, we are not meant to live that way. That way of living is killing us. And I hit hard on this in episode 200, part two of the comfort crisis. So if you haven't listened to that, check it out. Hang on a sec, get some coffee here. I just wanted to rabbit trail a bit from the Joseph story and remind all of us that as men, we need to be moving our bodies daily. We need to do hard physical things daily. We need to keep ourselves active, fit, strong, healthy, hard to kill. Walking, hiking, rucking, biking, jogging, swimming, shooting hoops, play pickleball, martial arts, whatever. I don't care. Just do something. Get active, get fit, get healthy, get stronger, be harder to kill. Anyway, back to the Joseph story. So when Joseph gets near Dothan, where his brothers are, uh, starting at verse 18, it says that they saw him from afar And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Premeditated murder. That's what's going on here. They conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Then Reuben, the oldest brother, intervenes, suggesting that they should avoid murdering him and instead just throw him into a pit. You see, Reuben wanted to make sure that Joseph came back home to his father. But Reuben's plan didn't go the way that he hoped it would. Picking up at verse 23, look at it with me. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Let's stop right there. That last verse I just read, that is a significant detail that many people overlook. They took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. It says there was no water in it. They quote unquote threw him and it was an empty pit with no water to land in that would help break his fall. Do you get what I'm saying? You seeing it? This indicates how rough and painful this experience was for Joseph. At the very least, you know it knocked the wind out of him. You ever had the wind knocked out of you? I've had the blessing of having that happen to me many times throughout my life. The very first time, I was probably around four or five years old. I was in my backyard with my dog Beauregard. I was standing on my picnic table. I was always standing on the picnic table. My sister tells me I used to get up on the picnic table and and preach to my dog Beauregard. 
<laughs> I would repeat whatever I heard the preacher saying on Sunday. I don't remember doing that, but she has no reason to lie. So um, I was probably around four or five years old. I'm in my backyard with my dog, Beauregard. I'm standing on the picnic table, and I'm walking backwards. And suddenly, I ran out of picnic table to walk on, and I fell to the ground. But when I fell, I hit my back first. My hands didn't go out. It was like I didn't have time. And it knocked the wind out of me. But I didn't know what that was. I just knew I couldn't breathe. So at four or five years old, I thought I was dying. I panicked. I began crying. When the air finally began to come back into my lungs, I ran inside. I told my mom what happened to me. I remember she hugged me. She told me it was okay. She said, you just knocked the wind out of yourself. That's a bad feeling. Now, that happened to me when I fell like two to three feet off a picnic table. Imagine Joseph being thrown into a deep pit in the wilderness. And it says there's no water in it to break his fall. You hear the scream, the tears, the thud when his body hits the bottom of the pit with no water in it. Were there boulders or logs or sharp sticks at the bottom of the pit that he fell on? Did he hit his head? Did it knock him unconscious? I'm not sure. But I think Joseph is pretty jacked up. I think in some sort of way, it bruised, it bloodied him. It could have even broken at least one of his legs or dislocated a knee. And I'm going to tell you why I think that in just a little bit. We do know that Joseph was pleading for his life to his brothers when all of this was going down. And we know this because of what it says later on in the story when Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt because of the famine and they meet Joseph many years later, but they don't recognize him. And he knows that they don't recognize him. And then he overhears them talking to each other, but they don't know that he can understand everything. And he says, uh, or it says in Genesis 42, verses 21 and 22, if you want to turn a couple pages, this is later in the story. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Do you see that one part in that passage where it says, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Now, I don't mean to jump ahead in the story, but that's another significant detail that often gets overlooked. Chapter 37, where we're at, it doesn't tell us that detail. And the thing that I want you to understand is that Joseph wasn't just passively standing there as his brothers did all of this to him. He's freaking out, just like you and I would be. He's begging them not to take his life. And they can see that he is visibly distressed and they can audibly hear him begging for his life. And it haunts them much later in life. I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to hear the cries of Joseph. I want you to imagine what that would have sounded like. Him pleading with his brothers. Don't do this, guys. Please don't do this. I am begging you. 
I'm sorry for the way dad treats me compared to you guys. It's not what I want. It's not my fault. You want the robe? You can have the stupid robe. It doesn't mean anything to me. And the dreams, I'm sorry for the dreams. I don't think I'm any better than any of you. I I, I was just telling you, I had these dreams. They're not normal dreams. They mean something. I'm not sure what. Please, guys, my brothers, no. No, please don't do this to me. And then they throw him into a pit. A pit with no water at the bottom. Then what do they do after they throw him into this pit with no water at the bottom? Now, this is unbelievable. Let me grab a sip of my coffee. Verse 25, look at it with me. Chapter 37, verse 25 says, Then they sat down to eat. They sat down to eat. They sit down and they enjoy lunch or dinner together. Like nothing ever happened. It doesn't even phase them what they just did. Remember, they want him dead. They were just about to murder him. But Reuben stopped them. There is no remorse for what they just did. There's no compassion. There is no second thought. They don't care about Joseph or his suffering. Not one drop of care. Joseph, if he is still conscious, he's at the bottom of this pit with no water, and he's wounded, and he's crying out to them. But they don't care. They're hungry, and that's all that matters. We're hungry. We want to eat. That's what we care about. Then, as they're eating, they look up. And they see a caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah speaks up and says to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? I want you to see right there. That tells me that even though he's in the pit, At this moment, they were still considering murdering him and lying about it to their father. I think that throwing him in the pit was just to temporarily pacify Reuben for the moment until he went away. They still want Joseph dead. But Judah, Judah speaks up. He's got an evil idea that can ultimately make him some money. Some money that may allow him to enjoy a prostitute while he's away from home in Dothan. You say, why would you think that? Why would you think that he would take the money that he made from selling Joseph and hire a prostitute? I think that because Judah is a corrupt, evil, perverted man. And you're going to see that in the next chapter of Genesis chapter 38. If you've read that before, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Judah goes on to say to his brothers who are eating, verse 27, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. I mean, as if you care. Judah, you're full of BS, Judah, and you know it. It goes on to say, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now, I want you to notice a few things from that right there. Number one, it says that They, talking about the brothers, they drew Joseph up. 
they lifted him out of the pit. It doesn't say that they threw a rope to allow Joseph to get himself up out of the pit. It says that they drew him up as if they had to draw him up. It says they lifted him out of the pit. It sounds to me like Joseph is either unconscious or majorly injured. He can't do much to get himself out of the pit. Perhaps because things are broken or dislocated or both. To me, it sounds like he's a total mess. And then number two, the other thing I want you to see is this. They sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. I did some research into that. You know what I found out? This is crazy, man. That was the going rate for a handicapped slave in those days. 20 shekels of silver. Not a fit, young, healthy, strong slave. 20 shekels of silver is the going rate for a handicapped slave. Which makes you question, why didn't the brothers get more money if Joseph was young, fit, and healthy? I'm telling you why. Joseph is jacked up from them throwing him into the pit, which the Bible purposefully says, God wants you to know, it had no water in it. Significant detail that wasn't just like, yeah, I'm not sure why God put that in there. Joseph is jacked up when he comes out of that pit. And I think that that's all that the Ishmaelites were willing to pay for him. Because they saw him. I don't know if he's like knocked out. I don't know if he's just bleeding and his legs are broken. I don't know if they're just like, dude, what in the heck happened to this guy? Whatever it was, the Ishmaelites are just like, I'm only going to give you 20, 20 shekels of silver. That's all you're going to get for him. It doesn't make sense if he's young, fit, healthy, 17 years old. We pick up the story at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, it says he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? You see, Reuben knows that as the oldest brother, he will ultimately be responsible when he gets home to his father. He's the one more than anyone else that's going to be responsible for Joseph not being there. And he's already lost much from his father. He's already lost the inheritance. He's already majorly disappointed his father because of his sexual sin with one of his father's wives' maidservants, Bilhah. Joseph, I mean, Reuben had sex with one of the moms of his brothers, his stepmom. Do do you, you get this? So after Joseph is sold and taken away, together all of the brothers come up with a plan to try and cover up their evil deed. They've got to figure out a way to cover this up. How are they going to explain this to their father? How do they just make this go away? By the way, That's how sin works. One sin leads to another, and another, and another. Sin will not remain one isolated sin. That's not the nature of sin. Sin always leads to cover-up, lying, deceiving, more sin, worse sin. Unless God intervenes. If God intervenes and the man or woman who sinned falls under conviction and comes clean about it and repents, then that's awesome. But if that doesn't happen, there's always cover-up, lying, deception, more sin, worse sin. I've been guilty of it in my own life. 
I've lived it. This is how it goes with sin. Sin is like a malignant tumor, cancer. It is never content to stay isolated to just one sin. So when you sin, my brothers, and we all sin, we all stumble in many ways. You need to own it. You need to admit it. You need to come clean about it, all of it. Don't minimize it. Don't rationalize it. Don't try to make it look better than it is. Just confess it and forsake it. Repent. What does it mean to repent? Turn away. A 180 degree turn. Turn away. What does repentance involve? It involves not just confession of your sin, but separation. Separate from it. And it also involves prevention. Prevent it from happening again. Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Some translations say, give yourself no opportunity for the flesh. Repentance involves confession, separation, prevention, and it also involves replacement. Replace the sin with better things, godly things, good things. Don't minimize or rationalize it. Don't try to make it look better than it is. Confess it, forsake it, repent. Repentance involves confession, separation, prevention, replacement. That's the best thing we can do for ourselves. Or it only gets worse. It grows into more sin. It grows into worse sin. Some of you right now are just sitting there listening to me and you're like, yep. You're like, oh man, I know. I've experienced it. You're like, Grizz, I've lived it. Pick up at verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. You see right there, they're lying to their father. They didn't find it. They say, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he, Jacob, the father, identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol or the grave. I shall go down to the grave to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, talking about Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Grab a sip of my coffee. Man, this is crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. It's all a true story. This really happened. This is a historical fact. This family is a complete mess. I mean, dysfunctional is an understatement. You want to know what all this goes back to? It all goes back to Jacob. It all goes back to the father. Everything rises and falls on what, guys? Leadership or the lack thereof. Remember, in his past, Jacob was a liar, a deceiver, a cheat, and this sin has spread to his children. Remember, guys, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, 7 and 8, biblical fact. Do not be deceived, it says. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
man, do we all need to be reminded of this often. We talked about this on part one of the series on the life of Joseph, how as men, as husbands, as fathers, we just got to hear this again and again. You reap what you sow. Your decisions have major consequences. Good decisions have major, good, godly, blessed consequences upon yourself and also your family. Your good decisions will bless your family, but your bad, sinful decisions, choices, they have major consequences, not just upon yourself, but also your family. You've got to think, which do you want? What do you want? You choose. You have the power of choice. So Jacob, the father, back to the story, he's being totally lied to, deceived by his own children, just as he deceived his father, if you remember. And Jacob is crushed at this news. He is weeping at the news of his beloved Joseph being torn to shreds by a wild animal. It'd be some sort of mountain lion. That's what he thinks. He has no idea. It's all a big, fat, compounding lie. He has no idea this is all just an evil cover-up. You know, and I can't help but uh, just wonder at this point in Jacob's life, in dad's life here, (laughs) if this caused him to just stop and consider his own sinful past. Was this the thing that just really rocked him and he just began to think through his failures as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a follower of Yahweh? Did God use this news of Joseph as a slap in the face to wake him up? I don't know. But it needs to wake us up. So back to Joseph, who is on his way to Egypt as a slave, not a tourist. His whole life is turned upside down, guys. The hurricane has arrived. Hello, hurricane. As my uh, one of my favorite groups says, sings about Switchfoot. Joseph has been abused, betrayed, abandoned by his brothers, sold as a mere slave to the Ishmaelites. And then they take him all the way to a pagan foreign land and sell him again to a man named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. What's going on inside of Joseph? This is a real man, a real young man with thoughts, feelings. Joseph had no one in that moment. No one. Joseph had no one to look to in that moment but God. And I believe that's what he did. Rather than play the victim, we see throughout the rest of the story that Joseph, he does not play the victim. He's determined to trust and obey God, Yahweh, through all of it. And because of that response, remember, he has the ability to choose how he responds. We can't always determine what happens to us, but we can always determine how we respond to what happens to us. Because of Joseph's response to trust and obey God through all of it, listen to the results. God will be with him through all of it. And he will orchestrate all of it to work together for good, for his, God's divine plan to save countless lives. Listen, guys, I'll wrap up with this. In life, God allows us to go through some very painful things 
I've had my fair share. And yet, I know there will be more for me. More hurricanes are coming. The hurricanes in life are going to hit, and they're going to hit hard. We live in a very sinful and broken world where horrible, painful things happen to people every day. And eventually, it's going to be your day. Eventually, it's going to be your turn. You don't get a free pass. You don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card in this life. You're going to go through some really hard times. And you got a choice to make. How are you going to respond? You always have a choice to make. One of my favorite quotes from Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor, a concentration camp survivor. It's actually framed. It is on my wall. I look at it every day. The one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Viktor Frankl. Mm. You have a choice as to how you're going to respond. Joseph had a choice. And he chose to trust God and obey God through all of it. You can complain about it. You can whine about it. You can feel sorry for yourself. You can get mad. You can get depressed. You can go try to get even with those who did it to you. You can give God the middle finger. You can turn to sin, and you can try to medicate yourself with your sin. You can do all of that. It's your choice. But I assure you, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. It's only going to make your life worse. Or you can choose to give it to God. You can trust him through it. And you can obey him through it. You can praise him in the storm. God wants us to give all of our life to him. The good, the bad, the ugly, the unjust, the unfair things that happen to us. Give it to him. He wants us to give it all to him and to trust him to work it together for good in his time. That's the beautiful truth of Romans 8.28. And we're going to see that beautiful truth of Romans 8.28 play out in the life of Joseph. It says, and we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. See, this isn't true for everyone. Everyone doesn't get everything in their life to work together for good. This is for those who love God. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who, what does it mean to love God? To trust and obey him. We know that for those who trust and obey God, that's what it means to love God, all things work together for good. That's Joseph. When the hurricanes of life hit, we need to remember that for us as believers in Christ, this life here on earth is the only hell we will ever know because God has saved us from an eternity in hell. So this life, these hurricanes here in this life, this is the only hell we're going to ever know. A far, far, far better life awaits us in heaven. So as Winston Churchill wisely said, if you're going through hell, keep going. Trust and obey God. Keep going, my brothers. 
Trust and obey God and keep going. The hurricane will eventually end. When we go through the hurricanes of life, we don't understand why God has allowed them. When when it hits and you're in the middle of it, man, you don't understand what's going on. You don't understand why. Things don't make sense at the time. And we're tempted to believe that God doesn't care about us or that he's insensitive or indifferent to our circumstances. You think Joseph didn't feel all of that? But that's where you've got to turn to his precious promises. You've got to cling to them in the hurricane. Promises like in Matthew 6 where Jesus said, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. You got to cling to that. You got to cling to what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxiety, all your care on him. Why? Because he cares for you. I don't understand what I'm going through. Why is this happening to me, God? How could you let this happen? After all I've done for you. Don't you care for me? Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You got to cling to that. You got to cling to what David said in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You got to keep trusting and obeying God, my brothers. Listen, God cares. And God comforts. And he preserves. And in his time, he saves. He delivers. He rescues. So wait on the Lord. Trust and obey him while you're in the middle of the hurricane. This is what 17-year-old Joseph did. And in due time, it paid off big time. We need to learn from him and be the same kind of men. Follow Joseph's manly example. Follow Joseph's manly example of waiting, trusting, persevering. I got a couple closing items of Grizz Biz to go over with you guys. Man, thanks for listening. I hope that this episode was, man, as I always pray, like I hope that it guides, encourages, and equips you in your journey with Christ. Hope it just motivates you, man. Hey, subscribe to The Growl. The Growl is a weekly email that I send out for Christian men who are fighting to step up and man up. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. Also, are you tired of falling to porn? Are you tired of trying to battle that alone? Then join a climb team. Climb teams are weekly online small groups for Christian men who are serious about fighting and overcoming porn and other sexual sins. Climb teams help provide connections, support, guidance, accountability, encouragement. There's a link in the show notes. Man, Climb Teams will help you. I'm not kidding. All right. Let's see. We got a closed Facebook group for our brothers from other mothers. It's called the Grizz Tribe. I'll put a link in the show notes for guys that are trying to step up, man up. It's a great place to connect, find guidance, encouragement, share prayer requests, share some much-needed humor. And at times, I even do some giveaways on there. So join the closed Facebook group, The Grizz Tribe. 
Also, if you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at info at narrowtrail.com, info at narrowtrail.com. I'm also on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not real active on there. I think I just got back on Twitter. I got like a big whopping four followers on Twitter, (laughs) but I'm not real into that. So last thing, guys, a support our nonprofit ministry. The Grizz podcast is an outreach of narrow trail ministries. Narrow trail is a legit 501 C three nonprofit ministry. And I'm just asking you, man, stop being a mere consumer of the Grizz podcast and partner with us. Be a part of, of the Grizz tribe, like truly. Your monthly financial support for as little as just $10 per month, it's a big deal. It helps us continue to improve and expand our impact around the world. Now, there's a link in the show notes, and I assure you, it is safe, it is secure, it is easy to set up, and uh, you can cancel at any time. I think that's it, man. Signing off, dude. Yeah. Peace out.